Isn't it time for us to fly into life's mystery? Time to go somewhere we've never seen. Fly into life's mystery. Fly into the mystery. Good morning, and welcome to episode 608 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. How? Uh, hi, how are you? <laughs> that was smooth. <laughs> I am fine, thanks. Good. How are you? Pretty good. Okay. Anything to talk about? I don't think so. Um, I uh, wanted to note that I did not mention Joe Savory in last year's minor league draft, <laughs> but you but you did mention Aaron Pareda, uh, who at the time you had uh, you had texted a scout trying to get information for your minor league draft. <laughs> True to form. Even then, I was over preparing. Not that it helped me at all. And uh, you, uh, you, he recommended Aaron Pareda. You couldn't take Pareda because he had already been signed by a team, and we did this earlier last offseason when signed players were off limits. And so you couldn't take him, um, but you did call him your Neil, uh, Neil Cotts candidate for 2014. And uh, he did face 97 batters, which would have been a big deal for you mm-hmm. if you'd gotten uh, those 97 batters. Uh, he did not pitch that well. He has a... 5.91 ERA, but a much better FIP and uh, good peripherals across the board, and uh, certainly would not, given what what he did last year, it wouldn't be surprised at all if he were a, a very good reliever for 60 or 70 innings this year. He could be Neil Cotts still. Hmm. Well, those have pitched in five years, five year layoff. Pretty good call by that uh-huh. scout. Very good. Although those had, he had pitched in the minors a little bit, but those 90 something batter's face would not have made the difference, I don't think. So I don't have to feel too bad about that. Right. Can't believe you went back and listened to the 2013 minor league free agent draft or the 2014 one recorded in 2013 after we did the 2015 one. That is dedication? I don't even know if that's the right word. I listened to about one episode a month and uh, for whatever <laughs> reason. And this one, um, I wanted to see if I'd mentioned Joe Savory. Hmm. Okay, well, I'm glad you set the record straight on that. Mm-hmm. Today in in pitcher comeback news, old pitcher comeback news, Mark Mulder is not coming back. Yeah. So that concludes a couple of years of talking about Mark Mulder coming back, probably. Yeah, it's too bad. Mm-hmm. What did he say? He just couldn't get himself to where he wanted to be. Yep. Which is, uh, I mean, that's why people retire. Yeah. So... Uh, totally legitimate and understandable reason. It is. It is, in a way, a non-revelatory retirement statement. <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay, anything else before emails? No, sir. All right, then emails. This one is from Julian. Hi, Ben and Sam. Ever since reading Grant Brisby's piece about the winter meetings and his attempt to find a scoop, I've been wondering what would happen if all of that widely available but off-the-record information and rumors were released to the public. Obviously, it would have to be at least a year after the fact, and it should probably only be the big moves, but what if every winter all of the rumors and almost blockbusters were released? Would teams be okay with this one, three, or five years out? Would it be interesting after the fact? On a related note, do you think MLB should be more involved with the stat inclined section of the fan base? I don't know how that's a related note. <laughs> Seems like a completely unrelated note. On the one hand, it's a small percentage of total viewership, but on the other, the analytical depth and detail of baseball is one thing that no other sport really has. Could MLB find a way to market the sport that way, and would it be worth it? So first question first. Would it? How long would it be interesting first of all would it be interesting indefinitely if you could if you could get trade rumors from you know 30 years ago 40 years ago would you sit down and read them all or would you only be uh, interested if they involved some big player who would have altered the course of a franchise or something yeah even uh you know frankly even 
two years old, I don't think I would read very much. I There's something interesting. I did a piece, you, uh, you might remember it, Ben, I don't know. Uh, when, uh, let's see, la- was it last year's winter meetings were held in Nashville? Uh, like two thousand and two years ago, I think. Yeah, like not this, not this winter, but the winter before, or something like that. Yeah, two. It was, I think, three winters meetings ago. I don't know. Yeah, but two winter meetings ago, there was and, one in between the current one and and that one. And something like six years before that, there was also a winter meetings in Nashville, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering this right. Yeah. And so I went back and. Uh, looked at all the rumors that came out of those winter meetings. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. And then um, they were, I, I don't quite remember exactly the gag, but they were uh, close enough to rumors in this year. Like they fit sort of various rumor uh, archetypes. And uh, so I wrote them up in a way that would be ironic, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I it was interesting. It was It was interesting to some degree. I thought it was a, you know, fairly fun piece, but it took a lot of work to frame that in a way that would make them at all interesting. Um, and uh, there is, it's definitely fun to go back and see who Brandon Wood uh, was, uh, was um, who, who the Angels wouldn't trade Brandon Wood for, and uh, who the Dodgers tried to trade Matt Kemp for, and all those sorts of things. Uh, but so there, is, there are definitely nuggets within them. On the other hand, there is so much um, uh, Woody Williams talking to the card uh, to the Cardinals. Woody Williams talking to the Rockies. Woody mm-hmm. Williams not interested in going to the Red Sox. Woody Williams uh, uh, not interested in going to the A's unless they pay him more money than the Padres. And th- those aren't very interesting. And so you would really, really have to read a lot of things that aren't interesting to find the nuggets. So I think it's the sort of thing that uh, would be good fodder for some pieces. But if it mm-hmm. was a data dump, uh, it would get very old very quickly. The other thing is that uh, what uh, is described in this email as widely available but off-the-record information and, ru- and rumors that Julian says and that Grant talks about is somewhere between 90% and, and 10%, depending on who you're listening to, of all that stuff is probably garbage non-truth, right? Yeah. It's more interesting if you're if you're getting it straight from the source. It's if it's like the Astros, Astros ground thing, control right. leak, and that, yeah. at that if you're getting that and you can actually see the team's internal notes and and it's verified, you know what they talked about. It's not just someone blowing smoke. That's interesting for a longer period. I think there'd still be a lot of Woody Williams, but you'd at least get to see maybe how the team thinks. I think it would be interesting as long as. As long as the current, as long as the same regime was controlling the team, maybe as long as there was still some consistency on the roster, I'd I'd be interested in that for, I don't know, five years or so at least. I'd be interested yeah. in seeing like, I mean, say it's like Billy Bean. We're always trying to read the tea leaves with Billy Bean. So what if we got Billy Bean trade notes from a decade ago? Be interesting to see what he was thinking then. Yeah, I um. I, if it were that, if it were like the Astros thing, I think I would find a way to be interested in that for up to 20 years because that would be data. Yeah. And I am interested in this as data. I'm not interested in it um, once it becomes so polluted that it's sort of garbage as data. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be fascinating to see, to try to, I don't know, to try to design some inquiries into the sport if you could trust the information. But I think that what is going around the winter meetings, some of it gets reported and some of it doesn't, but a lot of it is tainted for various reasons. And the stuff that doesn't get reported, I would assume is less true than the stuff that does get reported. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the one thing that would be interesting about it is just to get a clearer sense of, um, of how long it takes or how long it doesn't take for some of these moves to come up. There was one of the biggest moves made this offseason, which came as a big surprise to people, um, I um, have been told after uh, since then that it was done three weeks before mm. it was mm-hmm. announced. And we were all shocked by it, and it had somehow been kept secret for three whole weeks. Mm-hmm. And uh, it would be fascinating to, uh, to just to see the process um, of how these moves get maybe agreed upon in principle, and then they uh, the big parts, and then they spend three weeks talking about, you know, 
the fourth depth piece at the bottom of it. But, you know, they kind of know. And, and it would help you to assess other moves that were made uh, by the same teams during the time where they kind of had this trade in escrow or, or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Julian's other question about when teams would stop caring that this stuff would be released, I think, is pretty much the same answer. Your Our degree of interest in these rumors would be would be very closely correlated with the team's degree of discomfort with these rumors being released. So as far back as as it would take for us not to care about these rumors, that's probably about as far as you'd have to go for teams not to care. And the closer, the, the more recent it was, the more they would care and the, the less they would want it to get out. If you are a GM and you're retired and you're out of the game, then maybe you don't you don't care what comes out uh, unless it paints you in a very negative light. But that's probably the case. I doubt that even a few years after or five years after, most teams would want to see anything like that leaked. Mm-hmm. And his his ostensibly related question about what MLB should do to appeal to a stat-inclined section of the fan base and whether it could do more, I think it, it actually does a fair amount, I would say. I... I I wouldn't say they're holding out. I mean, just just PitchFX existing is kind of amazing. It it didn't have to necessarily. It was released to the public, and I know that people who study that data have been a big help to MLB Advanced Media in finding problems with the with the numbers and working out the calibrations and everything like that. So they've gotten some benefit out of it also. But we have gotten a tremendous amount of benefit out of that whether it's reading stuff online and studies that we can do or things that show up on TV you know the K zone stuff or just just how how fast someone's throwing or what breakdown of pitches he throws all of that information is is pretty useful so i don't know that they could do more i mean individual broadcasts could maybe do more to integrate that information into the telecast, but that's not necessarily MLB's responsibility. So I don't know. We'll see what happens with with uh, StatCast and how much of that is made public and how much that shows up on TV screens and computer screens over the next couple of years. But there is a wealth of information out there and available for free. Yeah, I think they do great. The only thing that I can think of that I wish that MLB would give us that I don't see a, a particular disincentive for them or cost to them giving us. And I don't think they've ever been asked. So it's not their fault that they haven't. Um, but I also don't think they would. Is I think that uh, scouting reports, uh, af- I think scouting reports should be like copyright. After a certain amount of time, they should become public. Mm. And um, so, I, I mean, they can't compel necessarily the Red Sox to release their scouting reports. But I would like all scouting bureau reports to, you know, be public after mm-hmm. 25 years. And I mean, they did. They uh, the the diamond thing. What was yeah. that thing? Uh, uh, yeah. That the dump of scouting reports was was very fun that they uh-huh. had a few years ago. But it was you know a couple per player. Um, I would like all. I would like to have um, you know 80 per player if there are 80 that are out there. Yeah, sure, that'd be nice. Okay. Let's take Francis in the Bronx. This is from last week, and he writes, Last night we New Yorkers went to bed expecting a tremendous overnight blizzard, but we woke up to a Brian Taylor-level disappointment. As a teacher, I was hoping for multiple days off, but now it's clear that I'll be returning to work tomorrow. What current issues in baseball are we making way too big a deal about? It feels like we might be treating the rise of defensive shifts as a blizzard now, but it'll correct itself and turn into no more than a six-inch snowfall in the long run. So that's a good example. That's probably the example that I would have come up with if Francis hadn't given us that example himself. A lot of people, including me, wrote about shifts last week when Rob Manfred made some comments about them. Are there any others that seem similar? Like, I mean, the other big issues right now are, you know, pace, pace of game and making games go faster and contact and reducing strikeouts and those seem like serious things that we should be paying attention to oh not see neither of those particularly seems that important to me 
uh, I mean, nothing I'm, about baseball is truly important, but relative to other baseball matters? Um, rel- relative to other baseball matters, I don't know. I don't. I think that both of them are fine to talk about and fine to um, you know to to address. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I don't think that you know you know I like the strikeouts, um, but uh, neither one is is something that you should spend much of your life thinking about. To me, the thing that the biggest probably the biggest issue that people look at that maybe you could have added to your list and that I wouldn't have been able to argue with is um, pitcher health, pitcher arm health. Mm-hmm. And um, that, I mean, nobody's, I don't think anybody would say that the pace of game stuff has risen to blizzard level. It's just a thing people talk about. It's not PEDs or anything. There are no Senate commissions on pace of game. Um, there are no, nobody's going to be kept out of the Hall of Fame over pace of the game or anything like that. It's, you know, it's a fairly small thing. It's just sort of bylaws and yeah, I mean, there have been like that. It's hot, takes, hot takes about how it's uh, threatening no. the future of the game and the next generation. And There how... have been takes, but I don't think anybody has been able to make one hot yet. Uh-huh. People have uh, kind of rubbed their hands together to try to warm them up, <laughs> but they just, it's, they're kind of just tepid still. I think that, um, uh, I think that the elbow stuff, though, is people see as blizzard, potential blizzard. And uh, I don't know if I could talk myself into thinking that that's not as big a deal as it is. I think that it, well, I don't know. Maybe. I, don't know. I could talk myself into it not being a bigger deal than pitcher injuries have always been, which has kind of always been a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't, I'm, I'm not prepared to talk about Tommy John's right mm-hmm. now. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a big, long thing on Tommy John's. That's right. And it's uh, someday people will see it. Yeah, someday people will see it. And um, but right now I've I've forgotten what I wrote, and I don't want to say anything <laughs> that would uh, that would contradict what I wrote, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe I'll change what I wrote. So I have to just kind of pass on that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, anything else? What about? Uh, well, let's see. What, did do you think that PEDs turned out to be a bl- uh, a blizzard or a six inch snowfall in the long run? I mean. Do, I, I just, do you I, think that eradicating PEDs changed the game as much as uh, the hot takes calling for it suspected it would? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. More, I think more than, we don't have proof of it, but I think that the feeling probably generally that you have and I have is that it did more than probably the stat head uh, position yeah. was at the time. Yeah, I said that on a show recently that I've been kind of reevaluating the the standard sabermetric position, which was we can't really tell what the PEDs do and what's the effect of the ball and the ballparks and all those things, and it's not safe to assume that this is a direct result of that. And and there's still an element of that. I mean, if there's there are people who think that you know you just take PEDs and suddenly you're a superstar, and clearly that's not the case. There are plenty of examples that prove that not to be the case. But on the whole, just looking at the kind of significant changes that the game went through in an era that happened to coincide with a lot of PED use, as far as we can tell, certainly strongly suggestive. And the fact that things have sort of snapped back to historical norms in terms of the ages at, pe- at which people produce and just the, the frequency of outliers. I know Rob Arthur has looked into just like the standard deviations of performance during the PED era were ahistorical just because some people were so incredibly good, so much better than everyone else, that there was more of that going on. And those things seem to have calmed down. <laughs> yeah, I have always though been sort of uncomfortable with that because the uh outlier performances were also guys they were just as just as outliery for pedro maddox randy johnson and yes roger clemens um but i don't i don't hear any suspicion of those three guys i named and so then it's always made me think that roger uh, clemens (laughs) no suspicion no i I said the three the three names who clemens clemens pedro Pedro, Randy Johnson, and Greg Maddox. Mm, okay. Clemens, Clemens was the one that I. Uh, yeah, you hear Pedro murmured. stuff. 
sometimes. Do you really? I do. No kidding. Yeah. Interesting. Um, anyway, the I've always wondered. I mean, you know, my I, my hypothesis has always been that its expansion does that. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, that could be part of it too. All right. Uh, wait. Well, let me ask you one more about mm. those. Do you think that um, line drives that hit pitchers in the face is a six inch is a blizzard that is being treated like a six inch snowstorm potentially or do you think it is appropriately considered and i guess the same for uh batter uh you know head hunting or batter head health or however you would call it mm. uh, are we not doing enough for the inevitability that somebody is going to die on our tv screen <sighs> that's it's tough it's a really hard issue because the second if it if it ever happens once then of course in retrospect it will look like we should have done everything possible and who cares how awkward and boxy the helmet looked or how uncomfortable it was because it could have saved one life on the other hand baseball has been played for a really 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 long time and that hasn't happened yet to a pitcher and uh, it's it's it might happen at some point, but it is clearly a very, very remote possibility. And there's the argument that people can take that risk if they're willing to take that risk. And they certainly know that there's a risk. Every pitcher has been hit by a ball or seen someone else be hit by a ball. And if they want to risk that and decide that they don't want to compromise their pitching performance to be a you know slightly more safe, then that they should be allowed to do that. I don't know. It kind of comes down to how how strictly you think the league should mandate that and how much control players should have over their own safety and comfort. I don't know. It's easy easy for us to say that pitchers should just wear the most protective gear possible because we don't have to pitch with it, and that way everyone will be safe and we won't have to worry about it. And no one will have to feel bad about watching baseball if something happens. But pitchers don't seem to agree. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, question from another Ben. The Red Sox page at ESPN.com published an article a couple of days ago that was one of those pre-spring training check-ins, this time on a new guy, Rick Porcello. It focused on his reaction to the Scherzer deal and the idea that he could hit it big on the market next year. It was full of implications of unrealistic salaries for Porcello, like Porcello joked that now Scherzer has made all those big dollars, he may not have time for him anymore. With another strong season, Porcello figures to put himself in a similar situation next offseason. So here is my question. Is there anything Rick Porcello could do this year to get Max Scherzer-like money next year? Any set of numbers or Cy Young MVP postseason MVP wins? 225 innings, 250 Ks, ERA under two, walking practically no one. In general, what would a middle-of-the-road starter with pretty good pedigree have to do in his final year before free agency, before you would offer him $200 million? Would you dare do such a thing? Would I or would... Would anyone. Would anyone. Um, so I'm going to... Let's see. I'm going to call up a comp if I can. So... Porcello's last four years, which in this comparison arguably undersells him a little because he was pitching uh, as a he, he was making 30 starts for two years beyond that. But all right, so Porcello's last four years, 740 innings, a 97 ERA plus, and uh, 8.1 baseball war. Okay, uh, baseball reference war. Okay, mm-hmm. so I'm going to another guy, 745 innings. 112 ERA plus and uh, 7.9 baseball reference war. So the ERA plus is uh, better for the other guy. The war is the same. The innings are the same. And Porcello has a couple of other advantages in that he has a longer track record um, and uh, had a pretty good year last year, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe he was a ground ball pitcher on a bad defensive team for all that yeah. time. Yeah, had his best year of the four last year, so there's some reason to see there. All right, so that guy who I just named uh, was Mike Hampton, hmm. and he went 22 and four in his walk year with a uh, 155 ERA plus, a FIP that was worse, 
He finished second in Cy Young voting and 21st in MVP voting. And I would say that adjusted for inflation, his contract was probably Max Scherzer sized. Mm-hmm. Um, so that might be a precedent for somebody getting it with a phenomenal year. I don't think that Hampton would be judged the same this year uh, in this day and age if he had that year. I think that yeah. the, the peripherals would be a big, big red flag. Uh, and oh, you know what? I'm actually wrong. That was not his walk year. He then went 15 and 10 with a 3.14 ERA um, uh-huh. and did not make the all-star team, but was very good, had a very good 142 ERA plus. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's not quite a precedent. But like I think that, like I said, Hampton also, it's not like Hampton was pushing any boundaries of human achievement. If Porcello had uh, Corey Kluber's season this year, mm-hmm. would, he, would he get Scherzer money? Well, the one thing he has going for him is youth. He just turned 26, so he will be entering free agency as a 26-year-old still. So that will help. I I don't know. If he had exactly the same season this year that Scherzer had last year, what percentage of Scherzer's contract do you think he would get? Scherzer got 210. Are we going to call it 210, or are we going to do the inflation math? Yeah, it's hard to say. (laughs) Let's say 180. Let's just call it 180. Multiple sorts of financial adjustments to figure out what the actual value of that one was. So if he had what Scherzer did last year, which Mm -hmm. was good, but not, uh, you know, finished fifth in Cy Young voting, uh, had a 120-70 RA+, had a better FIP, I think he had one of the best FIPs in the league, and 5.5 baseball reference war. Um, and he'd if, be what three years, three years younger at least, three four years younger. He would be yes. Mm-hmm. I would be surprised if Porcello. I think that would push Porcello into the, um, the uh, at the high end, the six year one forty four range. Uh-huh. The classic, uh, the classic contract that all these pitchers sign their extensions for when they have five years of service time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I would guess that Porcello would get. So that's a pretty high percentage of Scherzer. Pretty high, but he, uh, yeah, and it'd be easier for me to say that if he had Scherzer's 2013 season, uh-huh. where not only do the peripherals all line up, but so do the uh, glam stats. And so if uh, there's there's some benefit, I think, to those still. Um, but yeah, I think if he had Scherzer's year, he'd get pushed way up high. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if he wins the Cy Young Award and has a strong Cy Young Award season, then maybe he could come close. Just the combination of performance plus age, because he is unusually young for a free agent. Do you think that really matters a whole lot for a pitcher? I think so. I mean, the fact that he debuted at age 20 and already has over 1,000 innings pitched, it's, it's not like he just started and has a fresh arm so probably doesn't make as big a difference as it would in some other cases but i i think so i think there'd be some difference okay all right do you want to do a full play index um yeah it's a very it's actually a very short one though okay so uh i got to thinking about um well i got to thinking about clutch statistics and trying to measure a league-wide uh, clutch statistic. You know, if uh, I'll try to explain this. Um, if you had a batter who, you know, consistently hit way, way better, you know, consistently way, way better in so-called clutch situations like late and close or like postseason games or something, eventually uh, he would have a public narrative about how clutch he is. And eventually, he might even convince you and I, if it lasted long enough and it was sustained and there was a huge body of work, uh, you and I might be convinced that this guy was just flat-out clutch, or the opposite, mm-hmm. uh, just flat-out not clutch, maybe. Now, uh, I want to see whether the league's clutchness, or whatever you want to call it, whatever thing this is that I'm trying to describe, whether it has changed over the years. And so I wanted to see whether they, uh, the leagues, the difference between the league's performance overall hitting in some spot would be different than um, 
uh, it would be different in you know 2014 than it was in 1960, or whether they uh, this gap between high stress and normal situations was consistent. And I don't know that I don't know exactly what I'm measuring. I I keep using the word clutch because that's what the splits in this type of setting are just are classified under in baseball reference. But whatever I'm getting at doesn't really matter. So I wanted to do this, but I couldn't think of what situation I could use. Because if you measured late and close, if you just looked at how the league performs in late and close situations, um, that wouldn't really tell you anything. Because now in late and close situations, you're facing Craig Kimbrell. And in 1960, in late and close situations, you were facing um, the number four starter going through the lineup for the fourth time, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so anytime I, every every clutch-type situation I thought, I could find some reason that it didn't work. So finally, I just decided to go with runners in scoring position with two outs, um, mm-hmm. which is clutch enough, right? I mean, it's the one situation where you know almost certainly that a hit is going to score a run, and you know almost certainly that a out is going to end the rally completely. No good can come of an out, and almost no bad can come of a hit. So mm-hmm. I figured that's a pretty big swing, so we'll do that. So I uh, looked at what the league as a whole hit in those situations um, in every year since 1960, and then what they hit overall, and then I looked at the difference to see if the gap between the stress situations and the non-stress situations had grown or shrunk. And uh, strangely enough, I wasn't expecting anything. I was just tooling around, and I maybe didn't find anything. But strangely, uh, 2014 was the second biggest gap in those 55-ish years uh, at 28 points of batting average. There was one year that was 29. There was one year that was 26. But otherwise, it's never even been above 25. And in fact, if you look at a chart, if you lay these out on a chart, there is a growing of the gap over the course of that time. It's not steady and it's not severe, but in the 60s, it was uh, around 15 points of batting average. Uh, And then in the 70s, it was around 20 points of batting average. And then in the uh, 80s and 90s, it's been in the uh, in the 20s, in the low 20s. And then last year, well, uh, last year was the the record, or not the record, it was second highest, 28 points. And so I'm wondering whether you have any hypothesis for uh, what's different about the game today that might be causing this gap, uh-huh. uh, or if you think I've stumbled on nothing more than uh, uh, a lucky hit on a play index search. Okay, well... So my first question, you didn't do it as a proportion of batting average, right? I, it's just I didn't, raw points? That's correct. However, because batting average is down, right. as a proportion, it would actually be higher now. The, the, uh, because batting, yeah, because batting average is down. Mm-hmm. I, so I didn't. I thought about it, and I forgot to take that step. Yeah, that makes sense. And the other thing is I would like to see some power, something, isolated power, maybe, over the but, same period just to see if maybe it's an approach thing where guys used to cut down on their swings with runners in scoring position two outs try to try to get a single keep the rally going whereas maybe now hitters aren't as willing to adjust their approach or uh, are incapable of adjusting their approach and continue to swing away more so than they used to in these situations and so maybe the overall production in those spots is not different right and so basically what we would be looking for is does the isolated power differential uh has the isolated power differential shrunk in that same time yes where the okay okay so i have done that Mm -hmm. and um it does not seem to be the case so the uh the gap between just to just to rephrase the gap between batting averages has grown and the gap between isolated power has also grown and so in fact uh, teams are uh, hitters are also slugging much less in these situations or isolated slugging much less in these situations hmm. so uh, in fact they are arguably if they are either changing their approach more nowadays or the same thing that keeps them from being good hitters for batting average in 
clutch situations now also keeps them from being good power hitters in clutch situations for now. So it could be either one of those things. Huh. huh. Interesting. Or it could be that these pampered players today just choke in the clutch. No, not <laughs> like they? the golden age of baseball when players worked in a warehouse over the offseason and had grit. Yeah. Uh, so the other thing, the other thing that you might think is that if there are more defensive shifts on, um, do you think, let's see, do you, it's hard to say because there are certain situations where you can't do a shift and certain yeah. situations where you can. And so we see, you have seen sort of uh, growing gaps between various base scenario splits for some players um, and league-wide because of this. But is two outs with runners in scoring position a shifting situation or a non-shifting situation? It's probably more likely a non-shifting situation. I would think so. In which case, you ought to be hitting better. Yeah. Assuming shifts work. Assuming so, shifts work. <laughs> yeah. So, hmm. huh. Huh, huh. All right. I don't know. Maybe Play index. <laughs> we don't always have to solve the mystery. We just have to raise one. I don't know. Yeah. Could it be that uh, teams are more likely to put in a fresh pitcher in that uh, situation because you have more pitchers? In, in, um, in the late innings, you're more likely to have a tough matchup, but I don't know that I mean, in the same way, you might be less likely to have a base runner in the late innings. So mm -hmm. the times when you're going to see a reliever come in, you're more likely to have already had a reliever in the game and be pretty good. Mm. Um, let's see. Uh, pinch hitters, the lack of pinch hitters. That doesn't seem like <sighs> possibly be enough. Yeah, probably not. I'm not even convinced that pinch hitters work all that well when they are it, used. So. No, yeah. Hmm. It's a framing. quandary. It's framing. <laughs> Must be framing. Yeah, I don't know. If you have any theories, let us know at podcast at baseballperspectives.com. It's also not It's not like a massively huge <laughs> effect either, so uh -huh. feel, feel free not to. <laughs> is it? But it is, it's not just 2014 was low and the years before that were, were normal. There is some... Some progression, some trend over time, seemingly. Yeah. yeah, I'll send you the the chart and you can look at it. But yeah, it's not like it's not a hugely steep line, but yeah, it's definitely higher by like if you just sort of blocked it off by decades, you mm -hmm. would see some trend. There's a there's a slope. Yep. I'm looking at it and I can confirm that there appears to be a slope. <laughs> <laughs> Rest assured. Okay. Well, interesting. Everyone Subscribe to the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. When you do so, use the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Explore your own mysteries. You could come up with many mysteries and answer some of them. Okay, let's take one from Sean. Now, you both have, during the course of the podcast, made reference to the teams you do or used to root for specifically, but I was wondering... If it was possible to go back in time to the moment you decided to root for the team you did, and instead give yourself an alternate team to root for, for the duration of your life up to this point, who would you root for? For example, I'm a Phillies fan, and wouldn't give seeing them win a World Series for anything, but looking back to as long as I've been alive, I'm turning 29 in May, I think it would be fun to be a fan of either the Rays or the A's for obvious reasons, but also maybe to be an Indians fan. You get the Bell, Bayerga, Tome, 1990s. They're always kind of relevant, etc. So I was wondering, just for the overall fan experience, again, the Rays and A's haven't won a World Series, but I'm sure there's some pride in continued success with low payrolls. What team do you look at during the course of your life and say, man, I wish I could root for that team? I mean, we're so the, the literal answer to this would be, well, no, my dad would still be the fan of the same team, and so I would not want to root for a team that, deprived me of the experience of getting to root for the same team as my dad. Yeah. Uh, you <laughs> there's, know, and there's, there's something about living, like if I chose the uh, Orioles and I was a kid growing up not in Orioles territory, that wouldn't be very fun. Um, there's so the fact that 
I was a Yankees fan at the time that the Yankees were winning World Series every year. It would be hard to top that. Would you, it? You you don't feel any? There was no um, kind of banality of being a Yankees fan during that time when you just felt like you were punching down all the time. And eh. I mean, <laughs> was there any of that? Did you feel any of that whatsoever, or was it just complete joy every single time they won a game and won a World Series? As I recall, I was I was pretty happy every time. <laughs> I don't uh-huh. think it really I don't think it really faded. Yeah. And you with the Giants have had a pretty good run lately. <laughs> so Well, and it's I barely care. Uh, right. I don't, yeah, know, I I don't guess... know if I barely care because of that, but after the first one all the tension was gone completely. Uh-huh. And um but uh but that's not really the question. I I think that uh the Yankees would be good not so much just because of the winning. The winning would be fun. I mean, they'd be top six or seven in my mind just from the winning. But getting to getting to have Mariano Rivera would be untoppable. And then getting to like Derek Jeter would probably also be really fun. Like, I would like to be the person who likes Derek Jeter. Um, but we're the rest of the country is deprived of that, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I grew up rooting for the Yankees, and I never was as attached to Jeter as I was to Rivera or Bernie Williams or even some other players. Yeah, it'd be amazing to to have Mariano Rivera in your storybook. Uh, but I think I I would pick the Red Sox. Right. It has to be the Red Sox. If you're a if you're a 28-year-old, yeah. it it has to be the Red Sox cuz you're well, old, you... you're old enough to have known what not winning yes. felt like and you get to claim the ownership of that. Right. And and then you get you get to the, the other depression, you get the lowest lows, you get the highest high in this period, you get subsequent highs as high as any other team, so it would be hard to top that. Plus, you get Pedro. You get Pedro. Very fun team, too. I mean, a lot of fun teams. Mm-hmm. Um, they've always been teams that have been compelling in not quite played out ways, in my opinion. Yeah. Annoying to fans of other teams at times, but probably not to Red Sox fans. You get David Ortiz, you get you get lots of fun stuff, and you get Fenway Park. So oh yeah, you do. It's hard to top. All right, last one. This is another baseball mystery that we are being asked to solve. This is from Phil, and he wants to know why managers say the things that they say. He wants us to explain this one statement by Buck Showalter. He says uh, he pastes from MLB trade rumors and MLB trade rumors pastes from Masson. And uh, here's the quote. It's on whether the leadoff spot is Deaza's job to lose on the Orioles. I wouldn't say that, Showalter says. If you asked what is a more important spot in our order, one or nine, I'd probably say nine because that allows you to do a lot of things down there. If you look at your 7, 8, and 9 hitters and 4th and 5th starters compared to other teams and your non-closer and setup guys, you have a real good idea how good you are compared to other teams. Over the long season, it is about 4th and 5th starters and the bottom of your order. Every team, especially in the East, can run 6 hitters out there. It's the other things that allow you to win 90-plus games. And Phil says... Showalter is a smart man, so he is purposely saying something nonsensical to make Deaza feel better when he bats ninth right. I mean, he can't really believe this, or can he? Well, I would say that um, that Buck Showalter and you and I, we all have a, a fairly consistent view of reality. We all basically know uh how the world works, how we see the world, and how other people see the world. And so when you say something like this, what you're basically saying is, not that the ninth spot is more important than the first spot, but that uh, given our shared reality, you think the ninth spot is more important than other people give it credit for, and perhaps that the first spot is less important than other people give it credit for. You're just subtly shifting the balance of importance. Another way of looking at it would be to say, if you have a team that has a typical guy batting first, a typical guy batting second, typical guy batting third, all the way down to nine, all the way through your roster, and you had a chance to upgrade in one area that you might consider it more important to upgrade from the bottom or just as important to upgrade from the bottom because 
as they say, the weakest link is the thing about the weakest link being the thing where the chain breaks, however that goes, right? Mm-hmm. That old, that old, that old saw. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, so he might just be saying that that is kind of his philosophy of building a roster is to make sure that you don't have any weak spots. And when maybe he's saying that when he and the guys in the front office get together, they don't say, well, geez, how can we make, uh, you know, how can we make our ace be better? Maybe the first conversation that they have is how can we make our fifth spot be better? Mm-hmm. Um, so I do agree that uh, managers do say things that are aimed at an audience of one a lot mm-hmm. of times, and we laugh at them. And I do wonder whether it's really important to, to say those things. I don't know if the players buy it any more than we do, uh, if the audience of one buys it any more than the audience of millions does. Uh, but I will both uh, say that, that sometimes that's it, and that makes a certain degree of sense. But that in this case, particularly, specifically, I will back Showalter as making a bit more sense inelegantly than than that. Mm-hmm. I I mean, it, does it make more sense if you're not talking about someone who's already on the team? Because if if he's already on the team and you're just deciding whether you want to put him in one spot or the other. I don't know whether it makes as much sense as if you're if you're saying that you would rather have a really good ninth place hitter in that uh-huh. like you could have if you're if you have a really good ninth place hitter I mean that almost implies that you also have a pretty good leadoff hitter because that's usually the difference between good and bad teams it's not it's not so much that that one of them has a better ninth place hitter and just has a terrible leadoff hitter. It's that the the good team has a good leadoff hitter and also has a good ninth place hitter, which is sort of what he's saying. Like the replacement, yeah. the replacement level of that lineup spot is so low that if you have a really good ninth place hitter, then that's great. That's a big boost. It's like a relative advantage that other teams don't have. But that also sort of presupposes that you're not giving back ground in another area where every team has a good hitter. So I agree. Okay. So I'm going to, I focused on the wrong part of this quote, I think, or maybe I focused on a different part of it. I focused on the second paragraph that you read about seven, eight, nine hitters in the fourth and fifth starters and, and over the long season and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. And you're, that that is one way. I mean, you, you can look at certain teams and say, Oh, this team is good. Not because it has, better superstars than this other team, but because at the bottom of the roster, it has better players. It doesn't have holes. Yeah. Uh, However, the sentence that um, maybe is being reacted to here by people in this conversation who aren't me is if you, is basically the idea that you would put Diaza in the ninth spot instead of first, even though you think Diaza is better. Yeah. That's the, that's the kind of implication of the first half of the quote. And the implication of the second half of the quote is so different. It makes no sense in that context at all. Because by the logic of the second part of the quote, if you look at your seven, eight, and nine hitters and fourth and fifth starters compared to other teams and your non-closer and setup guys, you have a real good idea how good you are compared to other teams. So if you see a continuity there, a logical continuity, what you would then be arguing is that you should take your ace and make him your fifth starter. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and I know that Buck Showalter doesn't believe that. Like that mm-hmm. is impossible to believe. Like not just you'd have to really be dumb to believe it. It is impossible to believe. It does not make any sense whatsoever. So because I'm, if he believed it, he would do it. <laughs> so now I'm the Orioles' to, worst pitcher would or best pitcher would pitch the least. Yes. So now I'm going to say that uh, he said this because he was dodging the question, or mm-hmm. he was trying to avoid a situation when Diaz does lose the job. And so the first part is an audience of one, and everything beyond that from mm-hmm. about. Uh, I'd probably say nine onward is a pivot. He's mm-hmm. trying to change the subject to something else. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. All right. And lastly, you already answered this question from Marcus, but I will share the answer because it's kind of a fun question. Here's a question I talked with a few friends about recently. What are the odds that Corey Seeger, Dodgers shortstop prospect, overtakes his brother Kyle Seeger in career war? There's all kinds of downside risk, injury, bust, etc. And Corey has a head start. Do you want to share what your answer was and how you arrived at it? One in four point five, mm-hmm. and uh, through no particular magic. What is your answer? I 
tried to come up with a different answer, but <laughs> you you anchored me with your answer. And at that point, I, no other answer seemed more reasonable than yours. Well, let's rephrase it. If we could, uh, if we could restart Kyle at zero, mm-hmm. uh, then what would you say the chances are that Corey is simply better than Kyle from this point on? How much? Because what is what is Kyle? So Kyle Kyle's, Kyle's currently probably the twenty fifth or thirtieth, twenty fifth maybe best player in baseball. Would you say? But without uh, with a, a with a with an, an enough sort of pedigree deficiency that there's still a little skepticism about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, not not so much. He got a not, pretty decent extension, but yes. Uh, well, pedigree. Uh, yeah, but I just mean yeah. I kind of just mean that like probably still underrated, and um, if we would, it wouldn't shock anybody if he never had another four win season again. Mm-hmm. If you if he were actually the 60th best player instead of the 25th, it wouldn't shock anybody. I think is all I mean. But let's say he's the 25th best player in baseball. What are the odds that the seventh best prospect in baseball becomes the the 24th or better best player in baseball? <sighs> Probably not good. Maybe uh, 20%. Okay. So if we're talking about, let's see, the the elder Seeger is 27. The younger Seeger is closer to 21 than 20. So if we're just talking about who will be, if we reset Kyle Seeger, his career war to zero, and we say Corey Seeger from age 21 on or Kyle Seeger from age 27 on, that maybe makes it a little more interesting. True. Uh, so do you have a, a new answer? Are you revising your answer at all? If that... If that's the way the question works, that they're both at zero and we just say who's better from now on, then I'll say it's I'll say it's uh, 2.5 to 1 against that okay. Seeker overtaking, or Corey overtaking Kyle. Okay. okay. All right. So that's it. Someone else asked about when we're starting team previews. If you didn't hear yesterday, we are starting team previews next Monday which means that we'll be back to five shows a week. But we have another show coming up this week before we do that. So uh, send us some emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. We will be continuing the email shows once a week as we do the team previews. Rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. And I have already exhorted you to join the Play Index, but remember to use the coupon code BP when you do. We will be back later this week.